he hates you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to deceive you. He wants to trick you. He wants to shame you. He wants to condemn you. He wants to cause you to despair. He wants you to question God. He wants you to doubt God's word. He wants you to question God's wisdom. He wants you to listen to culture. He wants you to listen to social media and whatever agenda some beer company is trying to sell you when they put a man on their beer can who thinks he's a woman. He wants to use all these things to form your worldview, to shape what you believe. He wants to redefine for you what a woman is. He wants to parade cross-dressing men in front of your kids. He wants to tell you that marriage is not between one man and one woman. He wants to tell you that you can be whatever gender you think you are. And he wants you to become a coward and not speak up for truth. He wants you to become bitter, cynical, angry. He wants you to hate the church. He wants you to pull away from fellowship with other Christians. He wants you to listen to your own thoughts and feelings. He wants to ruin you. He wants you to take your eyes off of Jesus. That's the devil's core goal. And that's exactly what he was trying to do with the Colossian church. Trick them. Deceive them. Draw them away from Christ. Take them captive. Suddenly, the book of Colossians might be just what the church desperately needs today. Hmm. Jesus wants you to be fully assured of his love. No guesswork. No, he loves me, he loves me not. He wants you to be assured, fully assured of his love for you. So let's turn to the book of Colossians then, chapter 2. Let's see just how demonic, and that's what these things are. What's happening in our culture today, the push for uh, this agenda that's out there, it's demonic. You need to see it for what it is. Let's see how just demonic these plausible arguments are that are trying to pull us away from God and pull us away from his word. And to help us counter that, here's what we need to do. Love Jesus. Love his word, love his bride, the church. That's what is desperately needed in the church today, to love Jesus, to not lose our first love, and to love his word, to love his wisdom, and to love his bride, the church. And we see that all of that was at the heart of Paul's ministry. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, hear the word, hear the wisdom of the Lord. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the full, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's continuing his thought from chapter 1 where he told the Colossians that he's working with all this powerful energy, this God's energy that was powerfully working within him. He says he preaches Christ crucified and he labors and he struggles to do it. He uses a Greek word that captures the idea, agonizomai. We get our word agonized from this. It's a wrestling term. Paul fights, he digs in deep to preach Christ and to see disciples mature in their faith. And he does it to the point of exhaustion. Paul agonizes, labors to the point of fatigue to preach Jesus, to proclaim him so that disciples would mature and grow. Then he, once again he says he struggles in verse 1. It's the same word he used in one twenty nine. Paul agonizes and struggles for the Colossian church. But how does he do it? from far away. Remember, he's never met these people before. Epaphras planted this church. Paul is in prison in Rome. They are in Colossae. So how does he agonize for them? Well, he's doing it with this letter for one, but even more so, Paul agonizes for them in prayer. He uses this same word agonize in chapter four to describe how Epaphras wrestles or agonizes for them in prayer. And so that's how Paul contends struggles and agonizes for them, he does it in prayer. Then he tells the Colossians what he prays for them. He explains what his ministry of struggle, his ministry of prayer was all about. And here's what Paul worked hard to see and do for others. Number one, to encourage their hearts so that they would be knit together in love, so that they would be reassured of God's love and have assurance And so that they would know Christ, they would know his word, know his wisdom. Listen, that's not a bad plan for any ministry, any ministry in the church. That's a a great thing to look at and say, these are the four things we want to do. It's not a bad list of things to pray for anyone. Listen, are you at a loss of what to pray for someone? What to pray for a missionary? What to pray for your kids? You can't go wrong by praying that their hearts would be encouraged that they would be knit together in love with other believers, that they would be reassured of God's love, and that they would come to know Jesus more and more through his word. Paul wrestles, struggles in prayer to see people encouraged so that their hearts get knit together with other believers, so that they're fully assured that God loves them, and then he prays that they would simply know Jesus more and more and more. I mean, Who wouldn't thrive? Who wouldn't mature? Who wouldn't grow as a Christian if those prayers were answered? Let's pray this for one another as we make our way through the book of Colossians. Let's pray these things for one another. Who wouldn't mature in Christ if these things happened? In fact, this is how we mature or grow in Christ. When these things are true in our lives, we will grow. We will mature as disciples. So Paul expends all this energy. He works to the point of fatigue, works to the point of exhaustion for what? He says in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouragement. Who couldn't use some encouragement? Who couldn't use some encouragement this morning? I love what Ray Ortland said. He said, I have never met anyone suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. Have you? I think about the ministry of encouragement a lot, but not as much as I should. 
My friend Murray Harris, the New Testament scholar, said to me once, Encouragement is one of the most important ministries in the church of the New Testament. Our biblical authenticity is at stake here, whether we are overflowingly encouraging to one another. Encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. The ministry of encouragement, therefore, isn't optional or just for people with a knack for it. Real encouragement has authority over us all. It deserves nothing less than to set the predominant tone of our churches, our homes, our ministries. The ministry of encouragement comes with no warning label. We have not taken it too far. The Bible does not say, encourage one another, but be careful. I love that quote. Encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. That's what we want for this this church, for the gospel to move from one believer, one disciple to another as we share it with one another, as we remind one another that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are clean, that we are accepted, as we remind each other that Jesus is coming again soon to make all things new. As we share good news with each other, you call that encouragement. Let me ask you, can you be too encouraged? Has anyone ever encouraged you and you're like, man, I'm okay, really? Like, I appreciate it, but like, like I've been encouraged too much. It's actually bothering me now, okay? No one's that way. So we should just automatically assume that people feel under-encouraged. Let me say that again. We should just automatically assume when we come to grace that people are already under-encouraged. We should assume that they need an encouraging word, a helpful word, a comforting word. And let's be that kind of church. One that prays for and then goes hard after encouraging one another. I mean, imagine what this place would look like if we made it our goal to encourage two to three people every day or two to three people every week. Think about that. What if we texted or called two to three people every week just to encourage them? Maybe revival would break out. So let's just assume that everyone we see here at Grace is under-encouraged, and then let's get after encouraging one another. I I need to be better at this. I want to be better at this. I'm usually stuck in my own little world, like, not thinking about, how can I encourage somebody else? I want to be better at this. We want people to come to Grace and leave saying two things. Number one, what a great Savior. What a great Savior Jesus is. And number two, we want people to say, I felt the gospel today because I was encouraged. Who wouldn't thrive in a church like that? Who wouldn't thrive on Sundays if they hear about how great Jesus is and then they are encouraged to keep living for him? Let's make that our goal on Sundays. And if we do it, the devil will get mad. I don't know about you, but I want to irritate the devil as much as I can because he's always trying to get me down. He's always reminding me, you're, you know, your sin, you're a terrible pastor, husband, father, on and on it goes. He's always up in my business. So I want to irritate him as much as I can. So let's make the devil mad on Sundays by enjoying our forgiveness and by encouraging one another. I mean, wouldn't that be great? What if you went to work tomorrow and someone asked you, how was church? And you told them, it was wonderful. We made the devil mad. We will do that. We will make the devil mad if we love Jesus, love his word, and love his bride. 
So Paul is praying that the Colossians would feel the gospel as their hearts are encouraged, but he also prays that their hearts would be knit together in love. And isn't the ministry of encouragement one of the ways that that will happen? Of course it is. One of the ways that our hearts get knit together in love is when we encourage one another, when we create a church culture where encouragement is the norm. That will knit our hearts together in love. But Paul prays that their hearts be knit together uh, in love because Paul knows how hard it is to love people. Paul knows that when you are a part of the church, a part of the bride of Christ, that you will encounter people who are hard to love. Some of you came in today and saw that person for you that is hard to love, and you're like, oh, there they are. Right? There are people who are hard to love in the church. Personalities usually come into play. Listen, I've lived long enough and been a pastor long enough to know that some people struggle to love me. Just ask my family. They struggle to love me. You think you struggle to love me? You should feel sorry for them. Some of y'all struggle to love me. I get that. I understand, okay? But I also know that you are that person for someone else. We all like to think that we're so easy to love and be around, but the truth is that we are that hard-to-love person for somebody else. So just as we may have come in and seen someone today and thought, oh, that guy really bothers me, we may walk into church and someone may look at us and be like, oh, that guy. We ever think about that? It's sobering, isn't it? Something to think about. Maybe we should be all be praying, Lord, help those people to love me. Help the people in my life to love me. I know what I'm like. You know what I'm like, Jesus. Please help them to love me because I'm hard to love. The Apostle Paul knows what it's like to be involved in a church. After his conversion, he spent somewhere between 14 to 17 years in a local church before he began his ministry. He talks about this in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Paul didn't get saved in Acts chapter 9 and then start in ministry. He spent 14 to 17 years serving in a local church. Paul knows that it is hard to love people. And Paul Miller knows that too. Paul Miller said this, You endure the weight, and listen, if you have trouble loving someone, listen to these words. You endure the weight of love by being rooted in God. Your life energy needs to come from God, not the person you are loving. The more difficult the situation, the more you are forced into utter dependence on God. That is the crucible of love, where self-confidence and pride are stripped away because you simply do not have the power or wisdom or ability in yourself to love. You know without a shadow of a doubt that you can't love. That is the beginning of faith, knowing you can't love. Faith is the power for love. Paul the Apostle tells us that the I-beam or hidden structure of the Christian life is faith working through love, Galatians 5, 6. Faith energizes love. We handle the weight of love by rooting ourselves in God. Our inability to sustain love drives us into dependence on God. Then faith becomes a continuous cry. Like the tax collector in the temple, we cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In overwhelming situations where you are all out of human love, 
you discover that you are praying all the time because you can't get help. You can't uh, get from one moment to the next without God's help. You realize you can't do life on your own and you need God and his love to be the center. You lean upon God because you can't bear the weight of love. So faith is not a mountain to climb, but a valley to fall into. God has called us to love one another. But that's hard to do, isn't it? It is, but that's exactly how we are able to love others when we realize that we can't, when we say it's too hard, when we find it's impossible to love others. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to collapse into Jesus, and we trust that he will strengthen us. So faith is not this mountain to climb. It's a valley to fall into. We collapse onto Jesus Independence in desperation. We desperately need God to love others because we can't do life on our own. We need help always. We desperately need the Spirit to love others. Only the Holy Spirit can knit our hearts together in love because we're just too sinful and too selfish. And that's why Paul prays that their hearts would be knit together in love. Paul knows what Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul will encourage the Colossians later on in chapter 4 to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In other words, to be a light uh, to their city, to share the gospel. But one of the main ways of doing that is by loving one another, as Jesus said. By loving one another. Then Paul prays that the Colossians would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. That they would be fully assured that they are loved by God. Fully assured of who they are in Christ. He wants them to reach all the riches of this understanding. Full assurance of understanding the gospel. He's basically saying, I want you all to understand and to comprehend the reality of what it means to be loved by God and to be in Christ. I want you to be fully assured, confident, absolutely certain that you are loved and forgiven to know it and to feel it. And he works hard that they understand the mystery of Christ. The mystery is that Christ is the long-promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and Paul wants them to know Jesus more and more. In him, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants them to know Jesus intimately, to have communion with him. But please understand this. Intimacy with with Jesus doesn't mean always getting the warm fuzzies. It doesn't mean all you do is sing worship songs. It might mean pouring your broken heart out to him, telling him you're sad frustrated, angry, hurt. Intimacy with Jesus means you know him, you know his word, you know his character, and you just pour your heart out to him, whether it's praise and thanksgiving and worship or adoration or anger, sadness, frustrations. When you know the real Jesus, you get real with him. No more masks, no more platitudes, no more Christianese, No more fake, you become real, raw, pouring your heart out to him. And you come to know the real Jesus through his word. 
The false teachers that were beginning to show up in Colossae were saying that they had access to these secret mysteries. But Paul reminds them that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in his word. That means, Christian, you have all you need for the Christian life. There is no secret to discover that sets you free to really live for Christ. You have all you need in him. Sadly, so many Christians are looking for that one thing, that experience, that something that finally enables them to live fully devoted to Jesus. We've all been there. It's like, man, there's got to be something where I'm like really sold out. And like, you know, I'm firing on all cylinders. We want there to be something out there where we finally get it. And like, we're just cruising past everyone else. Listen, ain't going to happen. There's no secret You will stumble your way home to heaven. You will not sprint effortlessly and glide home with ease, you know, just looking at sin and temptation and not being phased. You will struggle all the way home. You'll stumble, you'll fall, but you'll get back up again on your feet. The Christian life is not easy, it's a battle. And any form of Christianity that tries to tell you any different, run. There's no secret to finally living the higher life where you no longer really struggle with sin because you let go and let God. You will struggle with sin until you see Jesus every day for the rest of your life. And isn't that one of the main reasons you want Jesus to come back? So that you don't sin anymore? I can't wait to not sin Several years ago, Nancy Guthrie interviewed Johnny Erickson Tata. You may know her story. A diving accident in a pool in 1967 left Johnny, uh, she was 17 years old at the time, a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. In this interview from a few years ago, Johnny expressed an interesting perspective upon what she is looking forward to. She said this, you look at me in this wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years, and most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to your new body. And yeah, that's one of those fringe benefits, but I'm looking forward to the new heart, a heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases, a heart free of fudging the truth, a heart free from hogging the spotlight, believing my own press releases, a heart free of not believing the best of others, a heart free of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. Isn't that good? Isn't that what we all want? A heart free of sin? Imagine what it's going to be like. But until we get there, we will fight sin the whole way. We will stumble. So be very careful of anyone who claims to have any secret out there to the higher life. There's a a whole theology out there called the higher life movement that promises that. But it leaves a trail of exhausted, doubting, burned out Christians in its wake. There is no secret system or belief out there. You have all you need in Christ. You have all you need in God's word. And you will fight sin all the way home. The Colossians were in danger of falling for a lie that said there is more, some secret mystery, some new understanding and insight to get, and then they'd finally be free. 
Listen, Christian, you are free. You are in Christ, united to him by faith. There's no secret mystery. You just live life. You struggle. You stumble. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You rehearse the gospel. You love Jesus. You love his word. You love his bride, the church. Listen, as I was reading my manuscript this morning, I felt the Holy Spirit impress upon me, put a thought into my brain, however you want to define it. I felt the Holy Spirit saying, there's somebody here today, and you need to come home to your first love. And you know who you are. Do you love him? Come home to your first love. Get back into the Bible. Get back into fellowship with other believers, not just hanging out on the fringes, but coming here and getting connected and opening up your life and your struggles to others. We all remember those days when we were first born again, right? The joy, the freedom. Let's all come back to our first love. That's how you live the Christian life. You love Jesus, you love his word, you love his bride. And you stumble forward in community with other stumbling disciples with your eyes on Jesus and your nose in his word. Eyes on Jesus knows in his word. This is why Paul wants the Colossians to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul knows the importance of the gospel and Christ as the source of all wisdom. Paul knows that we're idiots, and Jesus has wisdom for idiots. That's good news. To quote Ray Ortland again, He's the founding pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville. At, at their church, they have this thing called the Emmanuel Mantra. Um, and it goes like this. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Number three, anybody can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anybody can get in on this. I love that. Anybody can get, on this, get in on this gospel thing if they're willing to admit their weakness. Anybody can get in on this Jesus thing if they're willing to bend their knees. Complete idiots are welcome in God's kingdom if they are able to bend the knee. That means there's room for you. Why? Because grace flows downhill to those who say, I can't do life without you, Jesus. I need your help to love. I need your wisdom because I'm an idiot. Like a magnet, God's grace is drawn to a bended knee, to eyes that are lifted up to him in faith. God's grace is attracted to helplessness, not strength. It's attracted to weakness. Jesus came for helpless people, not people that have their act together. So the criteria for coming to Jesus is helplessness, collapsing at his feet, all overwhelmed, weak, helpless, and very, very messy. God welcomes only the helpless. Coming home to God is bending the knee. Coming home is lifting up our eyes in faith. Coming home is helplessness. Coming home is admitting that you are a complete idiot and you need Jesus more than anything. Let me ask you, will you come home today? 
Will you come to Jesus? You come with the empty hands of faith and say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Have you done that? Have you come to Jesus? Come today. He will receive you. Quit living for you and come to him. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not social media, not Fox News, not MSNBC, not Instagram, not Facebook, not TikTok. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Satan's core goal is to deceive us. Lies are being pushed. It's not just some agenda from some organization or government. It's a demonic agenda that is being shoved down our throats today. You have to understand that. This is demonic. And if you struggle with your identity and your gender or whatever or your sexuality, we're here for you. Come talk to us. We want to disciple you. We want to point you to the wisdom, the treasures that are in God's word that will tell you everything you need to know to live your life in this world. But don't buy the lie. You have to see it for what it is. There may be some guy on there saying something, but it's demonic. In Christ are hidden all the treasures. There are treasures here of wisdom and knowledge, and they are hidden in this book. And you don't have to have a PhD in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic in order to unearth these treasures. You just... Pick it up and read, and the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to more and more treasure every time you read. This book is enough. It's all we need. It's the wisdom of God in your hand. It's wisdom for idiots. So why do we need to be super encouraged? Why do we need to have our hearts knit together in love with other believers? Why do we need assurance? Why do we need to know Jesus more and more through his word? So that we won't be deceived, taken in by spiritual snake oil salesmen. So that we won't be deceived by what the world is pushing and trying to shove down our throats today. So many Christians are buying into the system that is being presented about gender, marriage, sexuality, you name it. And they're saying, well, I mean, we need our hearts knit together in love. We need to be encouraged. We need to know Jesus and his word. We need to be fully assured in community with one another so that we're not deceived. That's what Paul says next. Look at verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's what the church needs today. Firmness of faith in Christ and in his word. Not what we think, not what culture is telling us about all the issues that we're facing. It's a firmness of faith in his word, in this truth. Still spines to stand up and speak. Soft hearts that break for lost people who believe the lies. The Colossians were in danger of allowing false teaching in their church. It hadn't taken over yet, but people were beginning to fall for it. Paul says, I'm with you in spirit. My heart is joined to you. I rejoice that you're standing firm in the truth, but I want you to be aware that you could be deluded by plausible arguments. 
And so all that Paul does in preaching Christ and writing letters and praying is aimed at maturity and not being taken in by false gospels. So understand this, Grace. Generally speaking, mature Christians who are connected to their church, who are assured of the forgiveness of their sins often, who know Jesus intimately through daily communion with him in his word, generally speaking, those people are not led astray even by plausible arguments, even by the arguments of our culture. Let me say it again. Generally speaking, mature Christians who are connected to their church and who are assured of the forgiveness of their sins often and who know Jesus intimately, typically they are not led astray by plausible arguments. But if you let your guard down, which so many Christians are doing today, if you let your guard down, if you are communing with God, if you aren't knowing and learning about the wisdom of God in his word, then there's a good chance you'll fall for some false gospel or whatever else is being peddled out there on social media and in our culture. Listen, Satan is crafty. He's no idiot. We are idiots, but he is no idiot. What's the very first thing we learn about Satan from the Bible? The very first thing we read in Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. First thing we learn about the devil, God's telling us, I want you to know something about this, your enemy. He's crafty. He's cunning. He's craftier than everyone. So be on your guard, Christian. Get your life from Jesus, not from Twitter. Get your identity from Jesus, Not who you think you are. I was born wrong. This is not me. Get your identity from Jesus. Get your wisdom from Jesus. Get your worldview from Jesus. And to do that, you need a church family and you need God's word. If you want to do what verse 4 says and not be deluded by plausible arguments, you have to have your heart connected, knit together with other believers And you need to be hearing the word of God preached, taught, read, listened to, etc. In short, you need God's word and you need God's people. Listen, I've seen hundreds, and maybe that number is too skimpy. I've seen hundreds of people taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition and plausible arguments. And the one common denominator has been They stopped taking in God's word and they stopped fellowshipping with God's people. That's a recipe for shipwrecking your faith. That's a recipe for destroying your life. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I understand the temptation. I do. I'm a pastor. I understand the temptation to just pull away from everybody, to not listen to this and to just hide, kind of become a spiritual recluse. You know, you get burned, you get hurt enough, you're like, I don't want to be around people. I don't even want to hear this. I just want to kind of hide out and numb out. I understand the temptation, so I'm not like trying to shame you or anything. I get it. But it's a recipe for messing up your life. Do you want to seriously mess up your life? Pay no attention to God's word. Pull away from God's people. Like I said, if you struggle with any of the things that I've been talking about, identity, marriage, sexuality, gender, fill in the blank, we're here for you. There's no shame. We all sin. 
We all sin. We all have struggles about different things. If you're struggling with pornography, anything, come, get connected. We will walk with you and you will walk with us because we need you too. But this is where you find hope. This is where you find healing with the community of faith here, with God's family. If you're struggling with anything, please, I don't want you to feel shame. I struggle with all my stuff. You struggle with yours, whatever it is. This is where we walk together. This is how we stumble forward. And when we stumble, there will be other people that pick us up. And then when they stumble, we will pick them up. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus. And you have to keep your nose in his word. The way you, are not take, being, the way you would not be taken captive by deceptive lies is by keeping your nose in this book. And being in community with other people. And keeping your eyes on your Savior. You need to love Jesus, love his word, love his bride. And then remember, Satan hates you. Cannot stand you. He hates it when you love Jesus. He hates it when you love his word. He hates it when you love his church. And he'll do anything possible to diminish your delight in Jesus and destroy your devotion to him. His strategy is the same. Always, it's to steal your heart away from Jesus. And it's not just a, I, I, don't, I deny you, Jesus, I don't want you anymore. It's just this subtle, mm, eh, I love you, Jesus, but he wants to steal your heart. He'll take that. Of course, he wants total apostasy, but he'll take a little, eh. So resist him, standing firm in your faith, as First Peter 5, 9 says, keep your eyes on Jesus. And then remember, we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. We love Jesus because he first loved us. We love his word because he first loved us. We love his bride, the church, because he first loved us. And he loves you. And don't forget that. Today would be a great day to return to your first love. If you've just kind of drifted, today would be a great day to return. All you have to do is collapse into his loving, welcoming, non-condemning arms. If you want to return to your first love today, you're not going to be met with a wagging finger. You're not going to be met with arms crossed like, "Ah, again, how many times are you going to do this? You're not going to be met with it. You're going to be met with welcoming arms saying, I've been waiting for you. I'm so glad you came back. That's who you will find if you return to Jesus today. Or if you come to him for the first time, you will find a welcoming Savior who doesn't shame you. He doesn't condemn you. He just says, come home. Let's turn to him in prayer now. Jesus, we know that the devil despises your love for us. And he definitely hates our love for you. Whether overtly through condemnation and persecution or covertly through seduction and prosperity or gradually through busyness and ministry exhaustion, we know his strategy is the same, to steal our hearts away from you. But we know he won't succeed, Jesus, because you have crushed his head. You have made us your own forever. Nothing will keep us from the wedding feast of the Lamb. Nothing will keep us from life with you in the new heaven and earth. But I ask you this morning, Holy Spirit, wake us up from our slumber. 
Jesus, restore to us the love we had for you as new believers because we were so free then, so joyful, so focused on you. Nothing else really mattered. Make your relationship with us more real and precious than anything else we ask in your name.